We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. The whole notion of globalization as we know it now implies a kind of borderless and seamless movement of peoples and goods and economy around the world. And technology has allowed us to do that. Transportation has allowed us to do that. I think you told me the other day some incredible fact about shipping. About 80% of all the goods we consume, purchase, and so on are making their way to us via shipping. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 196, PH Factor, The Nation State, On the Road to Extinction. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Well, good morning, Harry. How are you? Good morning, Peter. I'm well. Thank you very much here in Nova Scotia. It's a bright, sunny day. It's uh, winter here. Finally, we've got a polar vortex that is now swooping into Atlantic Canada. So by Saturday, we're going to have temperatures, get this, of minus 28, feeling like minus 45 here. Wow. So we'll have to deal with how to protect the health of our horses. Do we keep them in the barn for the day? Do we put them up for a few hours and then bring them in? We have to decide all of that. But in the meantime, when the sun is shining and the wind isn't blowing, it's quite beautiful. It's a winter wonderland. And just for context, this is February the 2nd that we're recording on. The same vortex is going to be affecting us. In fact, we're expecting quite a drop in temperatures over the next 24 hours. We're not expecting it to be quite that cold, but certainly the coldest day of the year so far anyway. For those who are listening, Peter is in Ontario and I'm in Nova Scotia. And that's the weather. And now for the sports. <laughs> we always need to start our podcast with the weather. Anyway, the title of our podcast today has a question mark at the end of it. So on the road to extinction has a question mark. So we're asking the question if the nation state is moving towards extinction. And perhaps you can get us on this road now with a little bit of a background on the creation of nations, which we're going to begin in the year 1648 with the Treaty of Westphalia. So the Treaty of Westphalia essentially ended what was known as the Thirty Years' War, which was a war between factions of Protestants and Catholics, essentially a religious war. But prior to that treaty, what we had on this planet as far as agglomerations of people were concerned and boundaries, to use that term loosely, were kingdoms federations, empires, city-states, all of these sort of smaller groupings of people, but not really something that would be considered a nation-state as we know it today. So in 1648, when that war ended, they actually laid out what would constitute what we know as a nation-state. Now, the nation-state wasn't actually mentioned. That phrase was not mentioned in that treaty. They laid out the basic fundamentals of what a nation state would be, which is that no state has the legal right to intervene in the sovereign affairs of another state. That would be one of the precepts. And all states, whatever their size, would possess the same legal right to independence, which meant that you could have small groups of people becoming nations, as well as large groups of people. So Luxembourg can become a nation as well as Russia, for example. So, in a sense, it laid down the model 
of what the nation state would be. And, and that model also presupposed that the people within the nation state, within the boundary of the nation state, would have a certain homogeneous, if you like, culture. So in those days, they weren't thinking about mixed cultural mosaics and multicultural societies so much. They were seeing the nation as a singular people with a singular kind of culture being independent and sovereign in that way. So it was a major shift in a way in the way people were kind of organizing themselves. And so the nation state basically has several elements to it. The nation and the state are two different things. The nation is the people, so to speak, the culture, the vision of the people. And then the state is kind of the boundary, the geopolitical boundary that would define that particular country's borders, etc. So in simple terms, it's basically a uniform national culture through state policy and the implication being that its population constitutes a nation mm -hmm. united by a common descent, a common language, and many forms of shared culture. Exactly. And so as the centuries wore on from 1648, we had more wars, of course, in the world. And the one that really meant, in a way, the most to the nation state or the idea of the nation state would have been the end of World War I when you had all of these empires, the British Empire, all these empires were sort of breaking down and smaller states were emerging. Also, boundaries were being decided by the victors of the war. And suddenly you have Palestine, you have Israel. Israel came after the Second World War, sorry. But the foundation of the Middle East and boundaries in the Middle East happened at the end of World War I. So, that affected the way borders were perceived and created. And then you had the same thing in World War II. Yeah, World War I was the first step. But World War II, it really wasn't until that the tremendous tragedy of the Second World War and the shifts in the post-war of borders and population resettlement that many European states became ethnically and culturally homogeneous and became closer to what we now know as the nation state. Yeah. At the same time, you had the formation of two empires. You had the Russian Empire, known as the Soviet Union, and really the American Empire had its beginnings, you could say, at the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. So there's been this balance back and forth between sort of sovereignty, individual sovereignty of nations, and larger groupings of nations, associations, kingdoms, global empires, and that sort of thing. So we have this kind of push-pull that's been set up with the beginnings of the nation-state such that you have individual nations that have to somehow relate to other countries and fit into the world as it is constituted, both economically, politically, what have you. We created a kind of complicated balance through the creation of the nation-state. And the question really is, is that balance tenable at this point in time? Well, when you were talking historically, you were talking about the First and Second World War. And of course, we should include in this discussion what happened post-World War II. The emphasis was placed on the European continent because the European continent was the main battlefield. They figured out at the end of World War II that really this couldn't happen again because the Third World War would mean probably the ending of civilization as we know it. So the first attempt by the European nations was to form the now-called European Union, to make Europe into sort of a single entity that would have a lot more clout, economically speaking and politically speaking. And in fact, the European Union at this point 
generates about two-thirds of the GDP that the U.S. does, and this sort of represented a hybrid nation-state. Yeah. I mean, any sort of association of countries relies on each individual state maintaining a certain level of sovereignty and cultural uniqueness. You think about the end of the Second World War, in a way, Peter, and what happened there was you had a wall, the Iron Curtain, basically, between America and the Western Allies and then the Soviet Union, essentially. So you had the Cold War, the beginnings of the Cold War happening at that time, as well as individual nations kind of shifting in terms of their borders, etc. You also had the formation of NATO happening and then the United Nations. And after the Second World War, you had very large countries forming. The state of India and Pakistan were both created after the Second World War. Egypt, Iraq, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, the Middle East, all those countries achieved independence after the Second World War. So these formations of these new nation states meant that these populations had to sort of share in a vision for the future of their country and how they would fit into the rest of the world. And it isn't easy to do that. And we saw a lot of conflict. We saw wars in the Middle East, in the, especially the 60s in the Middle East. So it's not easy to say that the formation of nation states was a total success story. And I guess personally, I feel that in terms of our title today, on the road to extinction, question mark, I think nation states are on the road to extinction. With increased globalization and our interdependence that has been established over the last especially 50 years, with technology as it's evolved, it's going to be very hard for nation states to keep their sovereignty intact, I think. I'm going to say that nationalism aligns with borders. In other words, when we're talking about nationalism, we're also talking about systems within borders, which is going to be the dominant factor in establishing whatever system you're going to adopt. Is it going to be the movement of goods and services, or is it going to be the people themselves, the autonomy, their religious and political viewpoints, and so on? I think that's the most important part. I think people would be able to manage economies and trade, etc., without borders. But the worry for most people, if that were to happen, would be that their cultural identity would somehow dissolve or disappear. Mm -hmm. I don't see that as the case. I mean, people lived for centuries, for thousands of years, pre-nation state as city-states, as small kingdoms, as fiefdoms, and kept their cultures local and vibrant, etc., etc., so I don't understand quite the fear that people have. And the fact is, Peter, too, that we are essentially propagandized from birth to say, I am a proud Canadian. This is the greatest country on the planet, yada, 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 yada. Mm -hmm. That's great for children. But as you become an adult and began to become worldly and maybe travel a little bit and see how other people live, you begin to think to yourself, well, maybe I'm not just a Canadian. Maybe I'm more primarily a global citizen. And maybe beyond that, I'm more primarily a human being. And as a human being, I share way more with my fellow human beings around the planet than I do as a Canadian citizen playing hockey in the back pond or what have you. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. It depends on how you identify yourself as a human being. Well, exactly. Nationhood also has a lot of very individual and what I would call selfish or greed-based motives. There's a control factor. Mm -hmm. 
that comes into play. Right. And I don't know how evolved we are on a global level to be able to make that transition easily. I don't think it's impossible, but I think it requires more than philosophical discussion based on what we think is possible in theory and what is actually possible on a practical level. Yeah, of course, you have to think practically as well, but the idea has to start and then the practicalities get worked out. For example, we've defined what politics, what government is responsible for in our state. What's stopping us from redefining the role of government in our communities to maybe streamline that role? So it's not so much about looking out for national sovereignty and always acting out of self-interest for this particular nation, but they become more regulatory bodies, basically, kind of overseeing the day-to-day functioning of society, interfering a lot less in our lives than they do right now. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying this thing could happen overnight. Obviously, we'd have to kind of prepare the road. The formation of the European Union and other unions around the world, associations of countries in the Pacific, etc., I mean, these are kind of uh, hybrid versions, borderless states. The European Union still has nation states, but the borders have been softened. They're a bit more porous. You don't need a passport to travel, that sort of thing. You could start with that idea and then go a bit further each time. Now, I know there's pushback against the European Union, Britain, Brexit. Britain left the Union, feeling that it was against their self-interest to stay in the European Union. So there are countries that will push back. But for the most part, it seems that countries in the European Union seem to be happy to stay in the Union. They feel there are benefits. I think in that particular case, though, Britain aligns itself largely with the United States, certainly economically and from the banking perspective and so on, the London and New York connection. Right. So apart from the fact that it's an island a little bit removed from Europe, but not really, Britain is considered more capitalistic than the rest of Europe. So their alignment with the U.S., especially post-World War II, where England was greatly indebted to the U.S., not just monetarily, but also from a psychological and allied perspective. Well, of course. I mean, because the nation state was born with the idea that it's a coherent culture with technology, with travel, and with the migration of millions of people every year around the world, countries are becoming less and less homogenous. They're much more mixed with different cultures, etc. So you start to see friction within countries, which can erupt in civil war, which we've seen in different countries around the world over the past 50 years. So the nation state as an idea is not a guarantee of heaven on earth for people. It has its problems for sure, the way it's been set up. And it will take a long time for the nation state to actually go extinct, if it's going to go extinct, because people feel safer when there's a border, mm-hmm. when there's government looking after their well-being and the defense of the nation. You don't have to do that, particularly. Let's bring in the internet. Let's bring in what's actually happening. Let's bring in the changes that have occurred over the last, especially the last two or three years that have shown us that perhaps some of the ideas that we have or some of the existing systems that we have, political or otherwise, are no longer working for our benefit in terms of the systems or the environments that we currently live in. 
Yeah, because all that has to happen is that a nation state has to veer towards authoritarian rule or tyranny for the internet to be shut down and for the newspapers to be controlled by government. And suddenly you have a population that is cut off from the rest of the world. The beauty of the internet is that the free flow of information is borderless. People can talk to people. It isn't citizens talking to citizens. It's direct contact with other folks through the agency of the internet. The beauty of alternative economic systems is that you don't have to rely on borders, on nationality to do your business. So the fact is that there are models out there, even locally, you can set up your own currency in your own little community if you wanted to. There's nothing stopping a community from doing that, which is not a national thing. It's not related to the state particularly. It's just a, a local community thing. So we may find ourselves becoming more and more local community oriented as it was before nation states came into being. There were small enclaves of people, there were city-states, etc., but no big national countries, so to speak. So all of that is doable, I think, but it'll take time. And at some point, if the nation state as an idea begins to break down more and more, people may realize that it's time to move forward, try something different. I think not only with nation states, but with our lives in general, I think relationships are changing. Analogous to this nation state is also what's happening in relationships. Many people have discovered, especially over the last couple of years, they're exploring even other ways of living. People are questioning their relationships, the ability to modify relationships from what we have normally known or abided by to reflect what's actually happening, the exposure that we're having to different experiences. Mm -hmm. Because rules and regulations were set up primarily to run economies and to run a production system, to develop workers, to produce goods, to have a systemic approach to essentially improving people's physical well-being. They weren't set up for our spiritual development. So some of these things that you're talking about that apply to nations also apply to us as individuals with one another. The boundaries are not just the physical boundaries of countries. They're also the physical boundaries that we create towards one another. Yeah, essentially, we are individual nation states unto ourselves. So you could say that me relating to my spouse is one country relating to another country because I've got my ethics, my morals, my way of thinking about the world, my way of doing things, and she's got hers. Mm. And we have to find a way of coexisting and respecting each other's ways of life. The question is, what happens if those boundaries are broken down? And the longer a couple stays together, the more the boundary does break down. You might have been aware of this in your own relationship mm -hmm. where you start to do things more as your spouse would do them and they start to do things or think about the world more in the way you think about the world. So you start to move closer to each other and the boundary starts to blur. I think that happens naturally the longer people stay together and the longer nations interact with each other and the flow of people across those borders is encouraged the more that border becomes a bit more superfluous, I think. So that may be one of the things that happens is with the increase of world immigration and travel, countries will just become more and more mixed in terms of peoples. And that sense of one nation, one culture will just start to become meaningless. 
what you just described, for example, in relationships about the boundaries becoming more blurred, many people would construe that as negative. I think that's the other challenge that we have is to change our way of thinking in terms of what we perceive as positive and what we perceive as negative. For some people, the abolishment of boundaries represents chaos, represents lack of control. Yep. Now, as you're talking, what occurred to me was the whole underpinning of the nation state to begin with, you could probably trace that back to the movement from hunter-gathering to agrarian communities as the human race evolved. Mm -hmm. The beginnings of those agrarian communities meant the beginnings of boundaries. You wanted to protect your flocks, your crops, etc., your stores of food. Otherwise, your people would starve. So it, it was the beginning of standing armies, the beginning of worries about safety and security, securing your land. And that's what you're talking about. The whole point of boundaries is people feel safer, more secure. They're guaranteed that their neighbor across the border won't simply come over and steal their sheep or whatever. That traces back to our movement out of the hunter-gatherer mode to the agrarian mode. So now, what you're talking about is reconnecting to the natural world, which is really more like the hunter-gatherer's attitude and view, which was to be directly connected and to be fluid with the way the landscape moved and with the way nature moved and to be able to move with the animals in order to have food. So it's a different way of seeing the world not as a set of boundaries, but as a set of shifting frames or shifting landscapes. And with a borderless world, people would have to move in that way. We'd have to be more like hunters than gatherers in a way. And in many ways, we'd have to be more aware. Yes, of course. People can fall asleep inside a nation that ensures them that they'll be safe and secure day to day to day. They don't have anything to worry about. You pay your taxes, you go to your job, you live a mundane, uneventful life. You don't have to be very awake and aware inside that kind of system. And so shifting the boundaries or blurring the boundaries means you have to wake up. You have to interact with that person who's walked across what was your boundary and is from a different culture. And your cultures would have to then interact more. It's not a simple one-to-one. -one. It's not a simple, we just kill the boundaries and the world will be a better place to live in. There are positives to the nation state, for sure, but I think it's kind of outlived its usefulness in the end. I think with the onrush, globalism and global technologies and global ways of thinking, I think the nation state's days are numbered, frankly. That's my view. Well, we may not be typical in terms of our thinking, what you're talking about is a sort of uh, self-empowerment versus being constantly guided or directed by authoritarian rule where you give up certain freedoms in order to assure yourself of what you perceive to be safety and comfort. Yeah, look at the last few years, the whole COVID situation and the relationship between nations and a virus, which was a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. The virus didn't care one whit about borders, not a whit. Mm -hmm. And how did nations respond to that? Well, they looked after their self-interest. They hoarded vaccines. They competed like crazy for PPE, for protective equipment, for masks, and purchasing all these things. And there were countries that went without 
As a result of that, the poorer nations went without. The African nations had no access to the vaccines. All the Western nations bought up those vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, etc., because they have money. So here you have an example of how nation states can be bad for humanity, ultimately. And it becomes a selfish way of living in the world to only think about your nation's self-interest. And that's what our politicians, our governments are paid to do, essentially. That's part of their job, unfortunately, is only to look after the self-interest of my country. No one else matters. And that was evident through these few years of COVID, how selfish this system can be. Based on what you just said regarding governments and so on, and what their ultimate goal is, for me, it's also about understanding that the government's role is defined by the population that it rules over. And so the government is providing us with the things we essentially want or desire, whether we're aware of it or not. So the thinking has to be changed with us first. If we're going to adopt or adapt to a more borderless or a blurrier bordered system, we have to become that as well. We need to be more flexible. We need to be more aware so that the governments that we put into power reflect the same. Totally agree. It starts with number one, and we can move into our educational system and we can teach our children about what it means to be a global citizen as well as a national citizen. And that would be a way of beginning that shift in people's view of the world. And that would be my starting point anyway, would be our children. That's always the starting point. Exactly. As usual, we enjoy hearing from you. We enjoy hearing your comments about anything that we discuss on this podcast. And as always, Harry and I are more than happy to entertain anything you wish to deliver or any input you'd like to give us with regards to future episodes. Unless we don't like it, in which case we just ignore it. <laughs> just kidding. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, ciao. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.